There are two readings today. The first is from Malachi 3, verses 13 to 18, on page 144, sorry, 1,494 in your Black Church Bibles. Alternatively, you can follow along on the screen behind me. You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said, it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper. Even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honoured his name. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, there will be my treasured possession. I will spare them, just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. The second reading today is from Isaiah 49, verses 13 to 16, on page 1,141 of the Black Church Bibles. Shout for joy, you heavens. Rejoice, you earth. Burst into song, you mountains. For the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands and your walls are ever before me. Thanks so much, Jamie. Now, if you've got a leaflet when you came in today, you might like to open that up. You'll see an outline of where we're going today in the leaflet. And if you're the sort of person who likes to know that, you might find that useful. As we kick off this morning, I want to play a little bit of a game with you. Let's, um, Mike talked about, nailed it before, our quiz night that's coming up at the end of August. Let's get um, in the mood for that. So let me play a game with you. It's a game of who am I? If you know the answer to this, don't call it out. That'll ruin it for everyone else. But you might like to crack a smug smile so that everyone around you knows uh, how clever you are. I'm just going to sit down as we play this game. It's a who am I game. When I was seven years old, my family was forced out of our home on a legal technicality and I had to work to support them. When I was nine, my mother died. At 22, I lost my job as a store clerk. I wanted to go to law school, but my education wasn't good enough. At 23, I went into debt to become a partner in a small store. At 26, my business partner died, leaving me with a huge debt that took years to repay. At 28, after courting a girl for four years, I asked her to marry me, and she said no. At 37, on my third try, I was elected to the US Congress, but two years later I failed to be re-elected. At 41, my four-year-old son died. At 45, I ran for the Senate at loss and lost. At 47, I failed as the vice presidential candidate. 
At 51, I was elected as the 16th President of the United States. Who am I? Abraham Lincoln. Well done. What about you? Who are you? My name is Carl. I'm the pastor of the church here, Trinity Church Unley. I'm married to Meredith. We have four children, so I am the father to Jemima, Piper, Gus and Hamish. I'm a son to Kevin and Johanna. I was born in New Zealand. Sorry about that. (laughs) I love to build things, to create things, to make things. I love that so much. I think it's kind of part of who I am. But who are you? Where does your identity come from? And how solid is that identity that you have? Would you be the same person if you lost the job that you do? Would you be the same person if you were separated from your family circumstances? If I lost my job as the pastor at the church here, that would be painful for me, that would hurt, it'd be terrible in fact. But I like to think that I'd still be me if that happened. But if I lost my family, if I lost Meredith, I've been married to Meredith since I was 21, nearly all of my adult life. I'm not sure who I would be if I wasn't a husband to Meredith. Some things are central to who we are, aren't they? Let me tell you about a man whose name is Lorenz Sell. He writes for the Huff Post. He had it all in life. He was the CEO of a very successful startup company. Everything was really going well for Lorenz until he tried a new startup and things went wrong. He lost money and friends in his house. He nearly lost his company. And he was living rough. He was in his car. And he reflects with the readers of this article about what he's learned. He said this, he says, All things had been important to me. A nice apartment, fashionable clothes, a fancy startup, my social life, financial stability, my diet, fitness, even my sexuality. When I lost it all, they just dissolved. And spending nights alone in my car, watching the raindrops sliding down the window, there was nothing to distract me from me. Lorraine says, I began to let go of these things and I came to a challenging psychological place. I had no idea who I was. With every core identity in question, I had a hard time socialising. I had no identity. On what basis could I connect with others? He says, I'm Lorenz, but who is that? The relationships that I have with people, the things I know, the things I do, the stuff I own, well, that gives you an image of who I am, but what happens when you take those things away? Who am I then? They're good questions to ask, aren't they? Who are we? Here's another good question I think we should ask. What difference does the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is, what difference does that make to a person's identity? Does being in relationship with God change who we are? Does it make a difference? Well, this week and next, I want to spend a little bit of time with you thinking through these questions. A lot of questions. 
I know for sure this one thing. I don't have all the answers on this topic. Um, I've had to turn elsewhere for advice on this. Um, this year I found this book uh, by Brian Rosner. I'll hold it up for you here. It's called Known by God. I found this book to be very, very useful. If this topic of who you are strikes a chord with you, um, I'd love you to get hold of a copy of Brian Rosner's book and read through it. A lot of what I say today comes from this book. In fact, the two passages that we're going to look at together are also talked about by Brian in that book today. So where are we going? Well, I recognise that a number of you are destination rather than journey people. If you are, let me just make sure you've got your leaflet there. If you want to know where we're going, the leaflet will help. But ultimately, today I want us to see that the gospel, the good news that Jesus is Lord, is the good news that we can be part of God's big family. And that's good news because it answers the question that Lorenz asked before. It says this, Ultimately, those who confess the Lordship of Jesus Christ are those who are known by God. That means they belong to God and they find their core identity then, their core as being a child of God. And today's a great day to be talking about this because we've seen that already today in action in the baptism of Lucy. See, Lucy was baptised on the understanding that she belongs to God. That means that God knows her and loves her. Baptism is a symbol that shows us about our incorporation into the wider family of God. Now, Lucy's always been part of God's family from the day she was born. But today, Matt and Annika have publicly declared her place in that family. And so Lucy has a rock-solid identity as a child of God. And that's nothing that can't be taken away from her. We're going to spend most of our time today in the passages that Jamie read to us earlier, but before we do that, just want to take a moment or two to reflect on how we think about identity in our culture today. Here's a phrase you've probably heard before, be true to yourself. You heard that before? Sure many of you have. It is probably the phrase that most connects identity in our culture today. We see this idea kind of everywhere you look. It's in all the Hollywood movies, or nearly all of them, like Zootopia and Frozen and Tangled. It's in this kid's book. My kids love this book. They ask, actually my parents' book. My kids ask me to read this book every time we go into their house. It's about a boy who walks 8,000 kilometres around both islands of New Zealand. But it ends in him saying, if you search deeply and find your dream and achieve it, you'll be happy. Permeates its way through that book. You know, I blame this cultural identity thing on Julie Andrews. You know who she is? She's sang in The Sound of Music. She sings this song at the start of the movie, Climb every mountain, search high and low, follow every byway, every path you know, climb every mountain, ford every stream, follow every rainbow till you find your dream. It's the cultural narrative that we live with day in, day out. Be true to yourself. Look into yourself, find out who you are, and then live that out. I don't think it's always been that way, at least not as strongly as it is today. See, previously you might have taken your identity from your parents. So if your parents were bakers, you would be bakers. If your parents were farmers, you would possibly be farmers. At least more likely than not. But that's not so much the case today, is it? Look into yourself, 
find out who you are and live that out. Now, I'm not saying this is a bad narrative at all. I'm not trying to critique our culture here. There's lots of great things about this in our culture, isn't there? We have flexibility in this to pursue the things that we like, to work in jobs that we enjoy, to live in places that we think are great, to relax and find fun in whatever we choose to do. That's good things. But in terms of helping us work out who we are, there are some difficulties, aren't there? Is it really that easy to know yourself? And if you are able to know yourself, if you are able to look deeply down inside you, will you be happy with what you find? See, here's the reality for me. If I look deep down inside me, I find a number of things, but some of those are that I can be grumpy, surly, cold, quiet, and I don't like those things. That's part of who I am if I look inside. See, we're all made up of good bits, aren't we? but also some not-so-good bits. And if so, our identity is founded then on being true to ourselves, we might end up a little bit shaky in our identity, not sure which part of us to follow. And so what we often do, I think, is we take one aspect of our identity and we try and make that central. It might be our occupation as an engineer or as a pastor or an electrician. It could be our sexuality or our possessions or our family relationships. We make what was part of our identity core. Now, each of those things on their own, they're very important, aren't they? Who we're in relationship with, what we do. But can each of those one things, like our occupation or our sexuality or our relationships, can they bear up to the pressure of being the core of who we are? Here's some wisdom from Tim Keller. He says, if you build your identity on relationships, say with your spouse... You might end up emotionally dependent. If you build your identity on work, you might end up a workaholic and you'll bore the rest of the world to tears. And if work goes pear-shaped, you'll be a crumpled mess. If you build your identity on the possessions, on the things that you own, you risk become jealous. And you might become unethical in your pursuit to get more and more. We could say a similar thing, couldn't we, about each of those identity traits. They're important, but they may not be able to bear up to being the central thing in our lives. So what then is the core? Well, come with me, if you will, to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, it's on page 1810 of your Bibles. I want to read uh, to you from verse 26. Galatians chapter 3. Page 1810. This is what Paul says. It says, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For you were all baptized into Christ, have clothed, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So here in these verses we see the core of identity that the gospel brings. An identity marker that transcends the fickle and unstable identity markers. In Jesus we are children of God. This is central for Paul, so much so that this is the unifying aspect of the gospel. That means that there is no longer a comparison between gender and occupation or sexuality or family of origin. Because those things aren't able to bear the weight of who we are. 
the gospel gives us an identity as a child of God. And that means that God knows us and that he treasures us and that he loves us. I hope this is a wonderful encouragement for you today. I want to show you these things from the passages that Jamie read to us earlier. Turn back with me, if you will, to the Italian prophet. There's only one Italian prophet in the Bible, Malachi. You'll find uh, Malachi chapter 3 on page 1494. The book of Malachi, I think, is, is actually said, has a striking feature in it where God's words are contradicted by the people of God. kind of reminds me of um, my life in the mornings at home where I say something and immediately the kids contradict me. Are you ready for school? Why do we need to be ready for school, Dad? Have you done your piano practice? We're doing it this evening, Dad. Well, let me read to you from verse 13 of Malachi chapter 3. The Lord says, you have spoken arrogantly against me. The Lord's speaking to the people. You have spoken arrogantly against me. And they say, let me keep reading, yet you ask, what have we said against you? This is what they've done. You have said it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper. And even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. Do you see what's being said here? I can relate to the Italian prophet at this point because it's a big question for us today, I think, isn't it? The people are saying it's futile to serve God because they look around the world and they see the wicked prospering. I wonder if that's your experience today. Do you ever look at those around you who you know don't know God and think perhaps they've got it better? I mean, they don't have to go to church on a Sunday morning, not that church is compulsory, but imagine what others are doing this morning. They might be out at the local cafe. I mean, they're not going to get better coffee ever. Thanks, Wayne. Coffee was great this morning. But the coffee there comes with a newspaper and smashed avocado and a poached egg, and you just sit back and relax and eat it and enjoy it. Now, of course, going to a cafe doesn't make you wicked. Of course not. But what's the benefit of being at church then on a Sunday morning? Well, let's put the pressure on this a little bit more. What about because you've chosen to have your identity as a child of God, that changes the way you go about working in your job so that when that kind of questionable business decision comes up, while all the others around you just jump in and go for it, you might say no. And the result of that is that they get the rewards. They get the best sales figures. They get the promotion. They do the most billable hours. They get the reward from the company. And you, because you chose to follow God, what do you get? Do you ever feel that tension in the world? Do you ever look around at the people around you and see them prospering and think, what's the point then in belonging to God? Well, look at how God sees the world. Let me read on from verse 16. Those who feared the Lord, that's those who loved God and kept his commands, those who feared the Lord, they talked with each other and the Lord listened to them and heard. And a scroll of remembrance was written in his presence, God's presence, concerning those who feared the Lord and honoured his name. And you see what's happening here. Those who love God, who fear him, they get together and they write their names in a scroll, in a book. 
And God was with them, watching and listening and hearing and seeing. See, he knows them by name. He knows them as his own. And when he acts, it's those who are faithful, those who are his children, that he calls his treasured possession. Let me read on. It says in verse 17, On the day when I act, says the Lord, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. The whole of Israel, it was supposed to be God's treasured and special possession. But here we see a smaller group of people, those whose names are written on a scroll as the treasured possession. Brian Rosner, in his book, he mentions that in ancient worlds, kings kept royal archives. You can imagine a king doing that. And in those royal archives were all the decisions, all the memorable events that happened in that king's reign. And this scroll of remembrance, it's kind of like that for King God. It lists the words and the deeds and the names of those who belong to God as his treasured possession. I hope you find this a reassurance that God knows What's going on in your life? He knows what's happening in the workplace. He knows how the others might seem to be succeeding. He knows you. This is an assurance that God knows us in our struggles and in our difficulties. hope you find that reassuring this morning. But only does God know those who are his treasure's possession... Like a father, he has compassion on them and he spares his children. I don't think you have to be a parent to understand what's going on here, but I think it helps. I treasure my kids, I love them, I know them. And so when they're undergoing hard times, it hurts me too. When Hamish, my little one, when he falls off his balance bike, which he does every second day, scrapes his knee, when he does it really badly, it kind of hurts me as well. Because I know my kids, I love them. I want to spare them pain and hurt. God tells us there's a day coming when the wrongs in this world will be put right. And those who serve God on that day will be saved by him. See, belonging to God means being chosen by him. It means that God knows what's going on with us. And he cares for us and he loves us. I think we see the love of God really clearly in the second passage that Jamie read to us in Isaiah, chapter 49. Um, if you turn, turn there now if you can. It's on page 1,141, Isaiah chapter 49. And as you're turning there, let me set the scene for you to remind you what's going on here. This is written to Israel in their darkest days. They're trapped in Babylon. And although God had promised Israel a land of their own and a large people that they would become numerous. The people at this point are stuck in Babylon without their own land, far from Israel. This is written to Israel at rock bottom. You can't get any lower than this. And chapter 49 of Isaiah is a chapter of hope, though, in the midst of all that. Have a look at verse 13. You can see the hope there. It says, Shout for joy, ye heavens, rejoice, you earth. The question is, why? Why would you shout for joy? Why would you rejoice when you're stuck in Babylon, in captivity? 
And the answer is because the Lord comforts his people. Now, if you're reading this from captivity, that, that must just sound ridiculous. And so Zion, or the people of Jerusalem in captivity, they respond, they say, hang on, the Lord has forsaken us, the Lord has forgotten us. See that there in the passage? I wonder if you've ever felt that way, that you are forgotten or forsaken by God. Maybe this year's been a tough year for you. Does it feel like God's forgotten you or forsaken you this year? Maybe the last few months have just been one setback after another, hurt layered upon hurt. Do you feel forgotten? Or perhaps it's just been a few years since you last thought about God and the role that he might play in your life. Do you feel like God has forgotten you? If that's the case. For the Israelites held in captivity in Babylon, you can't blame them for calling out to God as if they'd been forgotten. But look how God responds. It's a wonderful passage. God says, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. There's perhaps no stronger connection, is there, between a mother and a baby? It's highly unlikely that a mother would ever forget a baby. And yet God's commitment and God's love and his compassion and his feelings and his sensibilities are stronger for his people than even a mother's is for her baby. What a powerful picture for us to see how much God loves and cares for his people. How much he loves for and cares those he calls his own. So I'm sure, despite what might happen in my life, my mum will never forget me. Well, here we see an even stronger connection. Despite what might happen, God will never forget his children. He can't forget them. They're always in front of him. Look what it says. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. God says, your names are tattooed or marked in indelible ink on the palms of my hands. If you're a bit more trendy than me, you might be into the inking craze. Some of you might be into that. Um, you probably tell I don't have any tattoos. But I, I worked with a guy once who had his children's names emblazoned in thick, black, bold letters from the top of his palms all the way up to his elbows. And there was no way that guy was ever forgetting his kids, whether they were in front of him, whatever he did, wherever he moved, whatever he said, his kids were there. What a powerful way for him to express the love that he has for his children. Well, God's got our names tattooed on his hands. Why do you put something on your, on your hand? You might like write on your hand. Don't forget to pick up the milk. Where do you put it? You write it on your hands. It's there in front of you so you don't forget. God won't forget you. Back in Isaiah's day, there was another layer of meaning on this as well though. It was normal practice in Isaiah's time for a slave to write their master's name on their hand. You see this in chapter 44. I'll just show you. Come back to chapter 44 of Isaiah. You'll see it there in verse 5. Some will say, this is verse 5 of chapter 44 of Isaiah, some will say, I belong to the Lord. Others will call themselves by the name of Jacob. Still others will write on their hand the Lord's. And we'll take the name of Israel. That was a practice. 
slave would have their master's name written on their hand. What makes chapter 49 so special is that it's reversed, isn't it? It's tipped upside down. The master, that is God, has the servant's name engraved on his hands. See, our God is a God who knows his people. And like my friend at work with names tattooed on his arms, God's not ashamed of his people. They're always before him. Not forgotten, not forsaken, loved and treasured and remembered and known by name. What a joy to think that the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who created our world, God who made the whole universe, knows us by name. That's what the gospel offers. God knows us. He treasures us. We will not be forsaken. We have a place in his family and we're loved by him. If you've read Isaiah before, you'll know that this idea of reversal, slave becoming master, it's not unique to this one spot in Isaiah. In Isaiah, we see God take the form of a suffering servant in the place of his people out of love. In just a few chapters' time, in chapter 53, we read of this suffering servant who was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. In the New Testament, we see this working itself out so clearly in the person of Jesus, God himself in human form. And it's no surprise then, is it, that God in human form has an indelible mark on the palm of his hands. A mark that was made by the nails that held him to the cross. See, these piercings connect the suffering servant to us forever. In John chapter 20, one of the disciples, Thomas, he's unable to believe that Jesus could really have risen from the dead for him. But it's the mark on God's palms that seals it for Thomas. I've got the words of this on the screen behind me. Let me just read to you this little bit from John chapter 20. Just a week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. I told you earlier about Irene sitting in his car, his business gone, his friends gone, all the usual identity markers in his life gone. Well, here's the beauty of the gospel. The gospel gives us an identity that can never crumble, can never be taken away. It tells us that God won't forget us or forsake us. Our names are on his hands. Jesus is marked for eternity with the nails of the cross. For our benefit. God knows us. He's watching over us. He does that in the hard times. Where he's treasured possession and loved by him. Valued like children. And in the end, God will vindicate the righteous. As his children, we too have a promised resurrection to look forward to. So that's the joy in the gospel, isn't it? An identity given as God's children. Next week, we're going to look at, look, keep looking at this a little further. I want you to see that this identity is something that is given freely. We don't have to earn it in any way. Now compare that with the identity that you might get from the world in your occupation or something like that. It's an identity that's given freely, not earned. It's part of what it means to be adopted into God's family. 
What does the gospel bring to the question of identity? The gospel helps us to see that we are children of God. And that's an identity that lasts forever, for eternity. Let me pray for us and give thanks to our God for what he's done for us. Father God, we thank you that in your Son, we are known by you and that we are loved by you, that we're given an identity that will never change or crumble. We ask that in your kindness you would help us to live out that identity as your people as we seek to serve you in all we do. Amen.